For February 24th, 2016, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. Welcome to the Energy Transition Show. I'm your host, Chris Nelder. Everybody knows that India is the second largest coal importing nation in the world after China, and that it is the fastest growing source of global CO2 emissions thanks to its rapid adoption of coal. It is widely believed that India's coal demand will continue apace. But sometimes what everybody knows is wrong. In this episode, we'll talk to Ashish Fernandez, an expert on Indian energy markets and a campaigner for Greenpeace for over a decade about how renewables are poised to snatch the lead away from coal in new generation capacity. Ashish grew up and lived most of his life in India and has made helping that country get off coal one of his career objectives. Most of the developed world is now working to eliminate coal from their power generation mixes. Until recently, China's increasing use of coal was widely regarded as the leading edge of our growing greenhouse gas problem. But now its use of coal appears to have peaked and China is leading the world in transitioning to renewables. That leaves India as the one place in the world where coal might yet have a growth market, as that nation struggles to modernize and bring grid power to over 300 million people who still lack it. India has the fifth largest coal reserves in the world, an estimated 10% of the global total, and let's face it, coal is still one of the cheapest fuels around. It is India's primary energy source, and consequently, India is also the world's third largest emitter of CO2. But while the world frets that India is about to assume the global lead in coal demand, there are indications that it may be pivoting to renewables. For example, Reliance Power, one of the top three private power companies in India, just replaced its CEO and announced that it is dropping its plans to expand its thermal generation portfolio in favor of renewables, including 6 gigawatts of solar, 5.2 gigawatts of hydro, and 3 gigawatts of gas in Bangladesh. This pivot, I suspect, is broadly indicative of where the rest of the Indian power sector is going. As the Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis, or IEEFA.org, pointed out in October, in the middle six months of 2015, India's coal imports actually fell 6% year over year. Ashish has an excellent grasp of all of these dynamics, and more importantly, of all the data. 
We've linked to one of his pieces in the show notes, which he wrote before the Paris Climate Summit last December, in which he lays out all the relevant data about India's electricity market and its growth prospects. We won't belabor that data too much in this episode, but I do encourage interested listeners to check out that link in the show notes, along with the other links in there, including some to recent papers from IEFA.org. So let's bring Ashish into the conversation. Welcome, Ashish, to the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for having me. It's often repeated that India is opening a new coal mine every month in order to fuel its growing grid power needs, and that India is the world's fastest growing market for coal. But people were saying the same kinds of things about China long after they'd ceased to be true. So let's set the record straight right off the bat. Is India's use of coal still rapidly increasing or not? India's use of coal is increasing. I would uh, dispute the use of the term rapidly, but it is increasing. And if you look at a global market where coal is pretty much stagnant, then yes, India is the only market where you're actually seeing an uptick in the increase in coal. But I would put that increase at tepid at the moment. It's not anything like what happened with China over the last decade, not even close. Okay. So I guess part of the reason for that is that, in fact, India is undertaking energy transition. It's starting to look to renewables instead of coal. There are several reasons for that. So one of the things I always tell people about India is that there's never a single reason for anything. It's always a combination. India is complicated. <laughs> it's messy. It's confused. There are a number of things going on that have caused coal to actually not experience the rapid growth that people have thought it would. And yes, renewables is starting to eat into that and starting to play a role there. Okay. So solar in particular has really been picking up steam in India. One recent news report I saw said that a Finnish group called Fordham Energy bid 4.34 rupees per kilowatt hour, which is about 6.3 cents per kilowatt hour US for a 70 megawatt solar PV plant. And that's among the lowest cost projects in the world. Three other similar projects were bid at almost the same price in India. And after this reverse auction, India Prime Minister Payush Goyal, if I said that correctly, said that solar is now cheaper than coal fire generation. So does this mean that India has reached a major turning point in its use of coal, or do you think it'll continue to build coal capacity anyway? I think we have reached a major turning point over the last year or year and a half. We've seen prices progressively dropping for solar. So what this means is basically the tariff that the discoms pay to a producer has been dropping to the point where now as you mentioned, we've had three or four projects that have all come in at a similar price range of about four and a half rupees per kilowatt hour. What that means is that price is actually going to be at par or probably even cheaper than what it would cost from a new coal power plant. So yes, it is a tipping point that we're getting to. What I and a lot of us believe is that this basically undermines the economic argument for coal. So the Indian government's argument for new coal has been that India has large coal reserves, it's the cheapest source of power for our people, etc., etc. That no longer is the case because we're clearly seeing that the additional marginal unit from solar is going to be at the same cost or even cheaper than what it would be from new coal. So that economic argument for building new coal has disappeared in effect. Does that mean that India won't build all the coal power plants that they've talked about? I don't think the figures that have been talked about were realistic at any point for a number of reasons that we can go into. Will India continue to build a few coal power plants? Yes, I think it's realistic to expect that there will be more coal power plants built. Not the large numbers that are being talked about, but yes, there will be more coming on. There is an existing pipeline of about 80 gigawatts that are officially deemed as under construction. Not all of those 80 gigawatts will be built, but some of them definitely will be built. Okay. 
Well, that's good perspective. So just to kind of bring people up to speed a little bit about how the solar market works in India. So these projects, these solar projects, were the result of a reverse auction. For those who might not be familiar with them, can you explain how those auctions work in India? And does this signal anything about prices for other solar projects? Sure. So it's fairly simple without going into the very technical details. But basically, when a project is up for consideration, builders are invited to quote the lowest tariff at which they can deliver power into the grid. And the one obviously with the lowest tariff wins the bid. That has basically driven prices down for solar. A couple of years ago, you were seeing bids that were around six rupees per kilowatt hour. And now the new bids are all under five rupees a kilowatt hour. So that's really what's driven the prices down. What this does mean is that the developer is basically supposed to calculate the lowest price at which he can earn his profit and deliver power. That can be a bit dangerous in India because we've seen a similar process that was followed for coal power projects where we had unrealistic bids. And within a few years after the project was built, the project proponents then basically tried to raise the tariffs, Hmm. which of course led to a lot of litigation and stuff like that. And a lot of those projects are still stuck in the courts. Interesting. The, The difference I would say between those coal projects and what we're seeing now with solar is that the bidders in the coal projects were almost exclusively large Indian coal players with a lot of political influence. So it's quite fair to say that they were trying to game the system. Yeah. With the solar projects, you have a much wider spectrum of players, both Indian and international, and a lot more respected, whether it's the Finnish group that you talked about or it's Sun Edison or some of the others that are involved. I think that's where the difference lies. And given the experience of the coal players who have tried to game the system, the fact that they're still losing money because their projects are now stuck in court, they've not been able to raise the tariffs, I don't think anyone is really going to think that they can do that again. So when a solar developer wins one of these reverse auctions by submitting the lowest bid, does that have any implications for other solar projects? I mean, do other solar bidders need to meet the same price or anything like that? No, they don't, because each bid obviously varies depending on location, what the radiation levels are in that place, what the connection infrastructure is at that particular location, et cetera, et cetera. So it doesn't really, I mean, if you look at all the projects together, they do give give you a trend, but picking one isolated project on its own does not necessarily mean anything. So if this was just a one-off project, which quoted this low price of 4.34 rupees per kilowatt hour, then I would be a lot more skeptical. But the fact that we've had now four or five projects all quoting similar rates at different locations in the country is indicative. Yeah, I mean, the other projects that I saw listed were quoting, you know, basically the same price, like 4.35 or something. Exactly. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So those are realistic numbers. I would think so, yes. Given the credibility of the companies behind them, if they think that it's profitable for them at that rate, then I would tend to give them the benefit of the doubt, yes. Right, okay. So according to Tim Buckley from the Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis, India currently has over 4.4 gigawatts of installed utility solar capacity, with another 16 gigawatts in the pipeline, which are expected to be operational by 2017 at the latest. So that would put India's solar capacity almost on par with the U.S.'s 23 gigawatts by next year. And that's just utility scale. Rooftop solar is also growing quickly. And Buckley says that after installing one gigawatt per year from 2013 to 2015, that the rate of installations is actually going to double and then double again. 
and that by 2022, the country will be up to 80 gigawatts of solar, or nearly four times as much as the U.S. has today. That, that just seems like an astonishing growth rate for a country not exactly known for building infrastructure quickly. So do you think those projections for solar are realistic? Okay, let's just unpack that a bit. Let's leave aside the 2022 figure for now. But if you look at what the current pipeline is, Bridge to India, which is a solar consultancy, renewable consultancy based in Delhi, they put out very good data and very good reports. And they've basically estimated what the pipeline is. And that's at around 15 or 16 gigawatts over the next year or two years. Okay, so that's already in the pipeline. So I think it's safe to say that that will definitely be built. Now, that represents huge growth rates, obviously, because right now I think we have about four gigawatts of utility scale that's already on the grid. So to jump to 16 gigawatts in just a couple of years is a huge growth rate for sure. Yeah. And I think that that's pretty much will happen. I don't see many of those projects really getting stalled for any reason. India does not have a huge record of building infrastructure fast and well. But if you look at the last five years and the amount of coal that we've built, it shows that it can be done because... The last five-year plan called for about 70 gigawatts of coal, and nearly all of that was built. It's clear to see that when, when the government puts its mind to it, it can happen. Now, the way that that coal was built, unfortunately, often meant overriding environmental regulations, overriding community opposition, and that's how it got built. Mm. The risk really is with the large utility-scale solar, a lot of the issues that have plagued coal will exist there as well. I'm, I'm talking largely about land and issues to do with land ownership and displacement of people and things like that. Some of those issues will arise with large utility scale solar. And that I fear is the real risk when we're talking about mega solar. On off-grid stuff, yes, the potential is huge and a lot has been happening. And actually, I don't think anyone has really put together proper data for how much off-grid solar has actually been put on and how much will be put on in the next few years. I think that's going to be a lot more difficult to judge and to estimate, but that really is where a lot of the potential is because off-grid solar invariably will be dealing with communities who at the moment get little or no electricity at all. Yeah, yeah. I've been trying to understand, and, and as you say, India is such a complex place. I've been trying to understand how much of these sort of off-grid communities might actually be expected to eventually be connected to a large centralized grid or might just go with an off-grid solar solution and just stay there? If you look at the official reports coming out, I mean, governments have for the last couple of decades promised electrification for all within the next five years. And that's a yeah. rolling target. Yeah, yeah uh, a perennial promise. Yeah, exactly. But even if you look at villages or hamlets that have been electrified, what does that actually mean to them? Usually very little. It means one light bulb in the central street, maybe, hmm. that's on for a few hours every night. It might mean 10% or 20% of the houses having one power point. And that officially would mean that that village is then electrified. So it really doesn't mean much in terms of what it does. Gotcha. So I think the potential is large. I think the people who will be doing it will be largely the small scale social entrepreneurs. The profit margins are not necessarily what the big guys would go for in these places because of the level of complexity and the fact that it's small, it's incremental, it's not one utility scale project. But I think the, the potential is definitely there for a variety of options that address this need. 
Okay. So speaking of sort of the disconnect between official promises and reality on the ground, in a recent article, which we'll link to in the show notes, you expressed some skepticism about the way that India is going about its commitment to climate targets. The government is targeting 40% non-fossil electricity by 2030, which of course means that 60% of its installed capacity would still be burning coal in 2030. And the fact that as it grows, India's electricity sector would actually add more coal, lignite, gas, and oil oil capacity than it would non-fossil capacity. So you've argued that the reason the government has been less than explicit about its climate targets is because it hopes to leverage those targets to bargain for more financial and technical aid from the West. So first, do you think these growth projections that you mentioned, especially, you know, essentially a tripling of India's electricity generation by 2030, are even realistic? I think a lot of those growth projections really depend on what the Indian economy does over the next 20 years. All the official projections talk about a 7 to 8% growth rate. That's pretty high. I mean, that's, that's like China's high. level, you know. Yeah. That's China's level. And as you've seen, even China couldn't sustain that for more than a decade or so. Right. So that's really high. I would say that that's definitely overly optimistic. Hmm. We might be looking at a growth rate of still about 45 or 5%, which by... Western standards is pretty high, yeah. is, is still very high. Yeah. If you look at the basics, there is without doubt a huge demand and need for modern energy in India, electricity. So you will have a huge growth in the delivery systems for that. That's inevitable. Will it be the 850 odd gigawatts that the government is talking about? Because that's what the calculations pan out to. They're talking about 850 odd gigawatts by 2030. Of total grid power generation capacity. Yes, of total uh, generation capacity. That's up from about 170 or 175 gigawatts. Right. That's 170 is about coal. Uh, total grid capacity at the moment in India is about 250. Okay. So you're talking about jumping from 250 to about 850 within 15 years. Yeah. So I think it's fair to say that is a bit optimistic. You might not see 850, but you still would probably see maybe 600, maybe 700 gigawatts. I think what's important to note is to come back to what we talked about earlier, the fact that the tipping point really has been reached in terms of cost of generation, solar versus new coal. Therefore, what is the economic justification for new coal? If that economic justification doesn't exist, those new coal power plants will not be built. We're seeing existing coal power plants struggling to make a profit already. So the market signals are quite clear that at the moment, it's not a good idea to try and build new coal in India. On the other hand, the market signals for renewables are quite good because solar is doing quite well and wind is doing quite well as well. Coming into the climate, where this plays into the whole climate negotiations, I think it's quite clear after what transpired at Paris and if you watch the Indian government and the Indian negotiators at Paris, it was quite clear that they were playing a game of basically using this leverage that India has coal, India has a desperate need for energy, India has historically very little contribution to the climate change problem. So the the justification for India continuing to build coal is what they are counting on. That would make sense, except that, like I said, the economic justification no longer exists. So you can meet the energy requirement through solar and through wind and through off-grid solutions. You don't need mega coal projects to do it anymore. Okay, and so you observed in your article that the Indian coal sector is basically at a standstill, that the project pipeline is stalled, the capacity factors for existing plants are really low, like 60 or thereabouts. So why would the Indian government still be projecting 300 gigawatts of growth in coal capacity? That just seems like such an obvious disconnect. 
Uh, there is an obvious disconnect and I'm afraid I don't have a very clear answer. We can speculate what the reasons for that are. And I have two main reasons that I think are responsible and in conjunction. So one is definitely leverage at the climate negotiations using, it's in effect a threat basically, that we will do what China did. And if you guys want us to do anything different, you've got to put up the money for us to go renewable in a big way. So that's cheap financing, it's technology transfers, things like that. Mm-hmm. You've got to be flexible with us. So don't expect us to sign up to, in terms of um, commitments, we've got to have some flexibility on the commitments because we are a developing country and because we have a huge poverty issue to deal with. So it's in part leverage for climate negotiations. This, the second bit of it is that you've got to remember that the coal sector in India, in terms of who the power producers are, the coal power producers, are a few, a handful of corporations who are very pally with the current government. Okay, so you have a few corporates that are very pally with the uh, current government. They have power projects that are either under construction or have already been built, and they have invested a lot in the coal sector over the last ten years or so. They have no. Um, ethical reason to not build coal because ethics is not something that drives their day-to-day behavior. So they would love to see a resurrection of the coal sector. So I don't think the government is counting out the fact that maybe we can somehow resurrect the coal sector and get those projects back online. And if they manage to do that, that would definitely keep their sponsors and their party contributors happy. Interesting. This notion that the Indian government would use these climate targets as a bargaining chip with the West, I mean, I I don't find this a hard idea to believe. But I also am a little skeptical. I wonder, like, is there evidence? What reason do we have to believe that that's actually what they're thinking? I think if you read between the lines that a lot of the statements that were made by the negotiators and by the environment minister, I think it's fairly clear. Like, for example, I think it was the environment minister, Javdekar, who said that this, when talking about the 40% non-fossil target, this is something that we've committed to. But if there is financing and support available, we can do a lot more. Mm. Um, That's one example. Yeah. The official INDC document itself says, it's quite vague. There's one sentence that's quite vague that says this is conditional to support from the developed world, support and financing. So They're dropping hints. Yeah, exactly. They're dropping hints. The very fact that the negotiator, one of the lead negotiators during Paris, said that India is open to revising its coal targets going by what happens here at Paris. Mm. So I think there's enough there to say that, yeah, okay, they're, they're open to, to renegotiating and to changing what the projections are. Yeah, okay. That makes perfect sense. Another recent article in, in Mining Weekly titled India's Coal Appetite Dwindles pointed out that annual growth in new thermal capacity in India has fallen from over 12% per year in 2012 to about 9% in 2015. And at the same time, the annual growth in renewable capacity has climbed to 18%. A senior official with the country's largest power producer, NTPC Limited, is quoted as saying that, quote, the pipeline of new thermal projects has completely dried up and no new plants are scheduled to come on stream in 2016. None. So it seems that for whatever reason, the advance of coal has at least temporarily been halted in India. And meanwhile, another two gigawatts of solar power will be commissioned in the first quarter of this year alone. 
could it be that the mere project size is a problem here? I, I just wonder, is it just a lot easier to round up the capital for a two gigawatt solar project than a 10 gigawatt coal project? Okay, a couple of things. One is just on the capital. I don't think that really holds good because we know that with, with a solar project, uh, the capital is all upfront, basically. So in effect, it's probably more difficult, I would imagine, as okay. opposed to a larger coal project where you can stretch that out over a number of years. I just want to sound a note of caution, which is that we must not do what we, and when I say we, I mean everyone in this world did a few years ago, which is basically hyped up the coal story. And right now we're in danger of hyping up the solar story. Mm. So when you talk about those growth rates, you got to remember that 12 to 9% shrinkage in growth rate for coal is coming off a huge base. Similarly, the 18% solar growth rate is coming off a really tiny base. So just bear that in mind. That's one. Fair. Secondly, when the NTPC official says no new projects in 2016, he's talking about NTPC projects. That's that company's projects. There will be some other new coal power plants that do come on stream. But yes, the larger narrative is true that the coal pipeline in India is shrinking rapidly and very few new projects are coming on stream. The projects that are getting commissioned are ones that started construction four or five years ago, or maybe in some cases more than five years ago, which is at the height of India's coal construction boom. That's when the boom really took off. So we're seeing the last last dregs of that now coming on stream. You're going to see the numbers of new projects that commissioned this year is going to be a lot less than last year, and the next year is going to be a lot less than this year. That's quite clear from the data already. Why that is happening is for all the reasons I talked about. Plant capacity has been falling over the last few years. So I think now the average for all power plants in India is around 60%. For private power producers, it's even lower than that. the the capacity factors, which means that they're really having trouble meeting their revenue projections. The reason for those low capacity factors is no longer the fact that coal is at a shortage in India. That was the case a year ago. This year has not been the case because Coal India has managed to raise its production. The reason actually is that the distribution companies that purchase power from the generators, many of them are in financial trouble. They don't have the money to purchase more power. The reason they don't is because they give away a lot of power free. There's a lot of theft of power. The distribution system is quite broken in most states. And so they are in financial trouble and they cannot afford to purchase more power. And that is really what is causing a lot of the financial distress in the coal sector in India right now. Well, I'm so glad you mentioned that because that was my next question is why are these guys having such trouble making money when there's clearly so much demand? You know, there was a recent report from October by the Energy Economics and Financial Analysis Group that said that Reliance Power, which is one of the top three private power companies in India, is only actually going to commission or has commissioned only one of five these ultra mega power plants, quote unquote, that it had been given approval to build. And the one that they built, the four gigawatt Sasan plant, was commissioned just a year ago, but is already looking for a second bailout. I mean, it just seemed impossible to me that on the one hand, there would be just this massive demand for electricity and obviously a massive need for it. And at the same time that the companies that were building these plants were running them at 60% load factors and struggling to make money. It's bizarre. It is bizarre. The reasons, I'll try and go into the main reasons without going too much into the weeds. But basically, most people in India cannot afford expensive power. They cannot afford the price of, of electricity as it currently is priced in many places. So what happens is that a lot of the distribution companies, which are run by state governments, provincial governments, they are subsidizing power to certain sectors 
in particular to agriculture. So it can be either free or heavily subsidized. They try and recover that subsidy by charging a higher rate to commercial users. So businesses, industries, etc. But very often because of the high rate of theft of power and just because of financial mismanagement, they don't break even. So they are losing money. Because they are losing money, they can't raise the tariffs easily for political reasons, obviously, because they're controlled by the state government. So they can't raise tariffs easily because that's going to hurt them at the next election. They cannot crack down on theft for the same reasons to the point that they would like to. So they are losing money. Because they're losing money, they cannot enter into new purchase agreements with new power plants, even though the demand obviously is very real. So they cannot enter into new agreements for that same reason. That's why you have power, you might have a one gigawatt power project that is only able to tie up a long-term purchase power agreement for maybe 400 or 500 megawatts. The rest it tries to sell on the open market where it gets a higher price, but it's a lot more unpredictable. And then they're running at maybe 60% capacity factors as a result. And so that's screwing up the power plant's revenue projections, obviously. Okay, so I'm glad that you brought up the issue of power theft because at the level of the distribution grid, far below these big mega projects we're talking about, India is notoriously messed up with rampant power theft, as you point out. And there's just like people in the street hijacking grid power, running a wire from some place in their house to some overhead line. Equipment is routinely damaged. Power is very inconsistent. And power companies have a terrible time of just doing collections from their customers in addition to just sort of the internal mismanagement that you spoke of. I remember seeing a 2014 documentary about these issues called Powerless, which was just amazing. And the situation to me, it just seemed hopelessly corrupt and broken. So do you see these kinds of problems being rectified somehow, such that India might yet attain a reliable grid and be able to execute capital projects and collect from their customers? Or I, I just wonder, like, how do you get from here to there? It will be rectified at its own pace. India moves at its own pace. <laughs> so things will be rectified. You've seen a number of states who've actually turned the situation around. They've actually managed to get back to some level of financial probity and sanity and actually manage to recover what they need to recover. Unfortunately, a lot of that involves privatization of the power system, which has other consequences as well. But it does involve privatization of the distribution system in many places. Maharashtra is a good example where the gap between uh, recovery and expenses is not as large as it used to be. So we have seen clear indications that it is possible. What it will need is obviously a crackdown on corruption and political will. It has happened in a number of Indian states and it can definitely happen in others as well, but it's a slow process. The fear really is that these same factors that have contributed to coal's stalling will obviously impact solar as well because it's the same grid we're talking about. So I think that really is the fear when you're talking about utilities, solar and how far it can go. Mm, that's a great point. So we seem to hear more about solar projects in India than wind, but there have actually been numerous wind projects signed or commissioned within the last couple of years. I didn't find exact numbers on it when I was looking just now, but it looks like they're certainly in the gigawatt range, smaller than solar additions, but still very significant. So what kind of growth potential do you think India's wind market has? I think wind has definitely, over the last couple of years, become like the stepchild of the renewable sector in India, even though it actually has a much older history in India. I think the techno-economic potential uh, based on the feasibility studies that have been done is quite significant, 100, maybe even 100, 150 gigawatts according to most studies. Though I do remember there was one study by, I think it was Lawrence Berkeley, 
that put the figure much, much higher. I think at close to a thousand gigawatts, if I'm not mistaken. Wow. So I think there's a lot of potential. I think what has held the industry back is the fact that in the southern states in India, for instance, which have some of the largest installed capacity of wind, there have been infrastructure problems with actually evacuating that wind power. So very often you won't have the, the turbines turning and that power is not going anywhere. It's not going onto the grid. And I think that has had an issue that has played a role. But yeah, leaving aside those teething issues, if you like, there is a huge potential for wind for sure. I think the major advantage that wind has over solar is that it is, in terms of space, given that India is a country where space is at a premium, it does lend itself much more to multiple uses of a particular piece of land rather than solar. So I think that's one advantage that wind has. The disadvantage, of course, is that it's a lot more infirm than solar. A lot of the generation will happen during the monsoon months for sure, less at other times of the year. Right, right. On a slightly different subject, in May of last year, a severe heat wave was blamed for the deaths of at least 2,500 people in India. And an estimated 20,000 or more people have died from heat-related causes in India since 1990. In these massive heat waves, it's common for the grid to fail. And the lack of electricity, in turn, contributes to the death toll. So how do the Indian people feel about these tragic outcomes? And is it shocking enough to mobilize them to take action to create a more reliable grid? That's a, that's a tough question simply because the, the people who suffer the most from the heat waves tend to be the people whose houses will not be electrified in the first place. Mm. So if there was the level of, of awareness and political mobilization to say that at the very least you should be able to have a fan, a ceiling fan in your house, right. then it would be an issue. But that's frankly so far removed from the level of discourse. It's quite far removed from where they are. The people who generally would die of heat waves would be a lot of the homeless, obviously, people living on the streets in makeshift shelters with no electricity connections, largely. So talking about a stable grid is several reaches away from where they are in their personal life. I see. Well, then how aware and involved are the Indian people in the policy debate around building more coal power or switching to renewables? I mean, is it anything like the debate around the clean power plan here? I don't think it's quite at that level. I think where it is, is that in the larger cities, you have a section of the population that is very well aware now of the whole issue around electricity, energy, climate change, renewables, to a lesser extent of coal, especially with the pollution problem now, there's a lot of awareness growing about the role that coal plays in the air pollution problem in major Indian cities. So I think that is definitely growing. And at the other end of the spectrum, if you like, in terms of demographics, you're talking about rural communities who are on the front lines of the coal expansion, who have either been displaced or threatened with displacement for a coal power plant or for a coal mine. And they are very aware of why they are being displaced supposedly because India needs electricity, and they are asking for solutions and for alternatives. So I think that's where you're actually seeing the debate. Okay. So you grew up in India, yeah? Mm -hmm. How would you say that Indians' attitudes toward climate and energy have changed in your lifetime? So I think you never saw the level of skepticism or disbelief when it comes to talking about climate change that you see in the U.S. You never ever saw that in India, and you still don't see it. Hmm. Uh, this is something that most people get quite quite instinctively because they've seen that happen. I mean, within my lifetime, just in the last 15 years, I've seen things change in India. I, I remember winters in Bombay being chilly enough that you needed a light jacket. And now that almost never happens. Hmm. You never, never need a light jacket. You'll be sweating in the peak of winter. So, you know, it's, it's things like that. People can relate to the fact that the climate is changing, that 
where the patterns are no longer what they used to be. That's quite clear and has always been been quite clear, I think, to people. Where where has changed is in the last few years where people have realized that energy and the energy systems that India is using have a role to play in that. And a lot of that has happened because of the opposition. They've, they've actually started to see massive opposition to new coal power projects. And that has led to people thinking and questioning to a larger extent of the consequences of, of India's energy systems. That doesn't necessarily mean that a large number support a switch. They might not yet be at that level where they're actively lobbying for or supporting a switch, but it is an issue that people think about and talk about now a lot more than they used to even five years ago. Fascinating. Wow. You know, India is just such a fascinating and complex place with such a deep culture. I just, my mind just spins every time I think about it. (laughs) It is remarkable. Well, Ashish, you've just been a a pleasure to talk to you and you have a wealth of knowledge about this stuff. And I really appreciate you taking the time to be on the show. Oh, I'm very happy to be on the show, Chris. That was Ashish Fernandez, an expert in Indian energy markets and a campaigner for Greenpeace. It's always interesting to talk to somebody who really understands India, sort of no matter what the question is. As Ashish said, reality in India is always complex and messy, and it refuses to be squeezed into any simple narratives. Yes, there will be more coal plants built, and officials will continue to talk up coal's future. But there will also be renewables, lots of them. And there will be unlikely allies on both sides of the brown-green debate in power. It'll be messy and complex. But based on the data I've seen, I think Ashish is right. With solar now at grid parity in India, coal has some very stiff competition. I do expect India to build a few more coal power plants, particularly projects that already have financing lined up and leases secured and project execution underway. But I think coal's era of strong growth is over, and we'll soon see India's interest in new coal plants totally replaced by renewables. I also suspect that with the bottlenecks now cleared away that were preventing deliveries of coal to some of India's existing power plants in recent years, and coal imports actually falling, that the expansion of India's domestic coal mining industry is also likely over. As we have covered repeatedly in this show, there is simply an oversupply of everything out there, especially in coal. It just won't make sense to expand mining operations when imports are so cheap and their transport has become more reliable. So once again, I think that what everybody knows about China's coal market is yesterday's news. In its World Energy Outlook report released last November, for example, the IEA said that Indian demand for coal was set to surge, increasing coal's share to almost half the country's energy mix and making India by far the largest source of growth in global coal use. And in its Energy Outlook to 2035 report released this month, BP forecast that between now and 2035, India's energy mix would evolve very slowly, with fossil fuels only falling from 92% to 87% of its demand, and that India's coal demand would double, making it the largest coal consumer in the world, and that coal would remain the country's dominant fuel. Well, those outlooks just don't square very well with what close observers like Ashish and Tim Buckley at IEEFA are saying. As always, it pays to be skeptical about what everybody knows. Everybody knows that the days are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows the good guys lost. Everybody knows the fight was fixed. The poor stay poor. 
the rich get rich, that's how it goes. Everybody knows. I'd like to take just a moment here to acknowledge that we turned the geekiness knob up to 11 in the latest episode, and I knew that parts of it would be well beyond the comfort zone of some listeners. Some of those topics are just inherently very technical, and it's hard to get around that while still doing justice to important information. But I am trying, and even in the last episode, once we got some of the technical stuff out of the way, I think the subject became more accessible, thanks mainly to some of Lorenzo's excellent metaphors. So if anything in this podcast ever gets too geeky for you, don't give up. Just try jumping ahead 10 or 20 minutes, and hopefully it will make more sense. And now look at some recent news. Item one. Those who followed or at least tried to follow our episodes on storage and grid architecture will find it interesting to note that FERC recently sent out a notice of inquiry inviting comment on, quote, the need for reforms to its rules and regulations regarding the provision and compensation of primary frequency response. To my ear, it sounded like FERC is interested in developing new markets for frequency response in general, recognizing that existing market design is too oriented toward big conventional generators. In other words, it may have implied that battery systems and other non-generators might be able to play in frequency response markets, which would be a new direction in terms of policy and another important step toward energy transition on the grid. So if you have a view on that, you might want to make it known to FERC. Item two, the city of Palo Alto has done it again, signing a contract with Hecate Energy for solar power at just 3.676 cents per kilowatt hour. I'll say that again, 3.676 cents per kilowatt hour. Not only is that the lowest rate the city has ever paid for a renewable contract, it's the lowest ever for a solar purchaser in California and probably in the United States. It's just amazing. At that price, it's not only cheaper than anything else by far that Palo Alto could buy, it's on its way to being free. The 26 megawatt project will be built in LA County on low productivity agricultural land and is expected to meet about 7.5% of the city's electricity needs after it starts up in 2021. And speaking of cheap solar, a new record for the lowest unsubsidized price ever for solar was just made for 185 megawatts worth of solar PV projects in Peru at an average price of $48 per megawatt hour, that's 4.8 cents per kilowatt hour. That's considerably lower than the six cent per kilowatt hour, 200 megawatt Mohammed bin Rashid Al Maktoum solar park announced for Dubai last July, which at the time was the world record holder for the cheapest solar plant. The same auction awarded contracts for three wind projects at around 3.8 cents per kilowatt hour. Just amazing. You hear these prices and you have to think, goodbye coal. Item three. Deloitte has efficiently joined the Energy Transition Party with a new study, Trends to Watch in Alternative Energy, outlining eight key trends driving renewables growth in the U.S. power mix. The report notes that nearly three-quarters of major energy deals made in 2015 were for renewable assets, and nearly three-quarters of the new generation capacity built in 2016 will be renewables. Alternative energy's shift to the mainstream, the report said, is largely complete and likely irreversible. Kind of reminded me of an article I wrote in 2014 titled The Clean Energy Transition is Unstoppable. For many reasons, once this transition has momentum, there's really no way to turn it back. And it now has that momentum. Item four. The Koch brothers certainly have been busy fighting the energy transition. It's amazing that they have any time left over to run their vast empire of fossil fuel interests. But unlike a decade ago, they're doing it under an increasing amount of scrutiny. 
Two new high-profile articles brought a fresh focus on the subject. Tim Dickinson's article, The Koch Brothers' Dirty War on Solar Power in Rolling Stone, and Peter Stone's, The Kochs Are Plotting a Multi-Million Dollar Assault on Electric Vehicles in the Huffington Post. We'll link to those stories and all the stories we mentioned here in the show notes. And finally, item five. Solar City, the solar developer, has issued a new white paper that really warrants the attention of anyone interested in grid planning and operations. Titled, A Pathway to the Distributed Grid, the report offers a very nice echo to our last episode on grid architecture. It describes in detail how a grid that, quote, fully embraces distributed resources, end quote, would be cheaper than today's centralized grid design. In the case of California, a whopping $1.4 billion per year cheaper for solar customers and non-solar customers alike. It arrives at that number by counting social benefits, such as the improved flexibility in grid planning and operations, increased affordability and consumer choice, improved grid reliability and efficiency, and of course, less reliance on fossil fuels. So I definitely recommend that to all grid geeks. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.